So this week we sent out a questionnaire on Facebook and we were asking everybody here, um, what is the best thing you've ever eaten in your life? It's like that meal, that thing, when it was over, you were genuinely sad that it had come to an end. And so we had asked and then there were about 80 some responses, I think overall, but I had some I was going to share with you. So let's get our mind around the best thing you've ever eaten. And Jan Rasmussen said, chicken tiki masala over at Canara. Heck yeah, darn good. Uh, prime rib at the mill. Uh-huh. Uh, grilled pesto shrimp, says John Beggs. Fried oysters with hush puppies, says my wife. I know where that meal happened. I'll talk about that in a minute. And it wasn't me cooking it. Uh, Blanchard's, we had, uh, uh, Adam says, probably prime rib. And she says, Thai quail thighs. If it's Thai, I'm digging it. Uh, let's see. Kanapin said, whatever I need to sustain me at the time. That is so very spiritual. But I know you have a favorite meal of some sort, so we give you an X. <laughs> Kathy Hoppy said, fresh Maine lobsters. My Aunt Joy said, egg hoppers and string hoppers, Manjanjaral curry. This is in Sri Lanka. And yeah. Um, I don't know about meals, but how about dessert? Nikki Clark said, creme brulee or tiramisu. Crawfish boil and Nola, that's my sister. Uh, chicken shrimp alfredo pasta. Mm-hmm. Jane Hildebrand responded with spam sandwiches on Hawaiian rolls. And right now you're going, ooh, what the heck? But there's a story behind that I'll share with you sometime. It basically started with a bet that she said, I've never eaten spam in my life and you'll never make me. I said, oh, yeah, but I can make it good. Holly Hodgney said, lobster grilled vegetables and garlic mashed potatoes at their wedding in Maine. I hear a lot of people kind of playing the main card back to this lobster thing. So I got to agree, it's pretty good. Buffalo steak and baked potatoes. Heather Whipple said, I was with some guys at the bus stop picking up our kids the other day. And one of them said, oh, you got to have the deer heart at the Stein. I said, come on, man. We're talking about the best meal you ever ate, not something you did on a bet. Um, For for me and and for probably some of you who will start to resonate immediately, um, the best thing you ever ate isn't so much uh, just a particular meal, but a place. And for me, that's just pretty much New Orleans. <laughs> having, having had some family there all my life. I've been born there. There's some places I know. So you start to say things like Antoine's and Coquette and New Orleans food and spirit and uh, Galatoria's and Brennan's and Arnaud. The best thing I swear to you I've ever put in my, li- in my mouth in my entire life, the finest thing I've ever tasted was, was, was crawfish etouffee at the court of the two sisters on Royal. Because Oh my gosh. It, it's just, you just kind of stop because there's just nothing to say. You just kind of go, that is absolutely apex. You cannot improve upon this. New Orleans food and spirit has some things that's pretty spectacular. But, but the point is this, you can, you can remember it. And when you think about the best thing you ever ate, what kind of happens overall to you? You kind of smile. You go, oh Yeah. Oh man, that was, that was really good. And the same thing would happen if you said, what's the worst thing you ever ate? You know, like deer heart at the Stein, Casey, if you're watching. But, but here's the thing, when you have that great meal, that great taste just brings back all these fantastic memories and, and all your senses are peaked and you just, oh, everything comes alive. So here's what Paul's doing. As Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, he's saying, there's a point here. I want you to hear the metaphor, the simile about the food and your behavior and where you are. And, it, and he says this, you're like children. 
You're like children. I can't get you to eat grown-up food. Because here's what I could tell you. If I were to take uh, Will or Madeline, when they were, they were little bitty ankle biters, and we took them over there, if we were to have taken them to the Court of the Two Sisters, uh, which I wouldn't, by the way, but if, but if we took them there and we're like, hey, welcome to Royal and Dauphine, you'll love it here. And so you're going to sit down here, we're going to put this spectacular dish in front of you. Do you think a five-year-old is going to be able to look at it and go, oh, that looks delicious. I think I'll try that. No, because what do kids like to eat? You think that show, kids like, you know, spaghetti, chicken nuggets. Right now, Marietta's going, that's my whole list. That was my favorite list of favorite foods. No. Children like kid food. They like, listen, listen, they like the familiar and the simple and the easy and the non-complex. Because to add any more to that, they can't necessarily appreciate it, or they're freaked out by even having to look at it. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are that way with your eating today. That's not what I'm, I'm not attacking you today. Some of you are out there like, I do not like the idea of a, of a crawfish anything. I'm not even going to try that. A lobster, that's disgusting. No. Dear heart, are you kidding? Casey, we are kidding. That's disgusting, and nobody should eat that. So, so here's what I'm saying. When Paul is talking to Corinth, here's what he's saying. I want you to understand that like children, you are refusing to eat the depth of Scripture, and you're only becoming satisfied with just milk. And in that, you're never really going to grow up. So let's hear that introduction from what Paul had to say again. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it, in fact. You're still not ready, because you're still worldly. Since there is envy and strife among you, or you're not worldly, and you're behaving like mere humans. Paul's saying, I want you to feast. I want your palate to be developed. I want you to appreciate great things. I want you to have great memories of phenomenal meals that just make your whole self go, yes, that was a really great time. But instead, you just drink and milk and eat and happy meals. And there's no great memory that's really going to come from that. It may keep you alive, but you're not going to thrive. You hear what Paul's saying? It's not complicated, but it's important. So what I wanted to do today is really get this, this, thing, this point across uh, what he's saying. You can't handle things from the grown-up table. I have to keep treating you like children. And so the theme of today's message, there's a problem with immaturity. Behavior expresses exactly where we've come to on our journey with Jesus Christ. Um, what is immaturity, though? Immaturity, immaturity. You know it when you see it, don't you? <laughs> you know childishness when you see it. You know somebody who should be acting a certain way, but they don't. Somebody should be grown up, but they act like children. Immaturity, by basic definition, is this. Behavior which is appropriate for someone younger, right? You can tolerate it for a while, right? Sometimes it's even, you know, good Hollywood show or something like that. I think most sitcoms are based on this concept, right? But after a while, immaturity gets kind of old, doesn't it? Doesn't that wear on you? Okay, so um, 
for the sake of illustration, uh, immaturity and, and, kind of, and kind of what it does. I was a youth pastor for a long, long, long time before the Lord moved me into missions ministry and, and, um, and then moved me into pastor. But in, in youth ministry, I got the, the, the privilege of serving some, some pretty dynamic churches. And one that we went to uh, was in Virginia Beach. And when we got there, they had this crazy idea. And they had uh, all the teenagers from, from sixth grade to 12th grade, this is probably 120, 150 teenagers at the time, they're all together. All their classes were together. All their gym time was together. The meal time was together. The trips were all together. Um, you know, that's okay for a while. But what happens is, is, is you remember this because you've, you've all been there or you have kids that are there, right? How does a 10th grader and a 6th grader get along? How, how do they do? Uh, no. Magnetic opposites. This is just not going to happen. Because she who has a driver's license... And she who is 10 or 11, no, there's just no connection. And so what happens is those who can will leave. They'll vote with their feet. And so immaturity wears on older. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth grade. Of course not. You're just in a different frame than somebody who's at that next stage. So here's what we did right away. At that church, I said, okay, (laughs) uh, problem one, uh, let's, let's specialize. Let's specialize and, and let's meet fifth and sixth graders right where they are, okay, in their life. Let's create a thing, and we called it a zone a, a, a Area 56, kind of an alien theme. It was wicked cool, just trust me. And so we did this Area 56 thing, and they had the, their room was painted up like with the aliens and everything, and all their trips and retreats kind of had the alien theme. But we met fifth and sixth graders right where they are, right, which means an olfactory challenge at all points, you know, for the leaders. But, but we, we met them there, and, and we were teaching them scripture right where they were, and we were constantly drawing them and challenging them and empowering them. And what we did for, for our 7th, 8th, and ninth grade is, is we developed a middle school ministry that was, ju- we call it junior high, but it was just for them, and in their thing, and high school was just thing. That youth group exploded. And before we knew it, Wednesday nights, we got over 300 kids showing up. Why? Because we fed them where they were. And we taught people, oh, by the way, and Matt's going to resonate real fast. We actually fed them where they were too, okay? You've never seen so many hot dogs get, you know, get thrown out the door with these kids. But what we learned was this. If you meet people where they are, and you give them the food that they can appreciate, and you constantly introduce a little better and a little better and a little better, you develop their palate. You understand the metaphor I'm working on, right? And so it wasn't long before Kimsel Baptist Church's student ministry was characterized by community service. And so our fifth and sixth grade were always wanting to be engaged in the community service things we were doing with raking leaves and painting and cleaning windows and fixing roofs and, and mowing grass and, and putting in the handicap ramps and, and these things that we did constantly for folks, cleaning house for folks sometimes. They wanted to be a part because they realized when they did that, what it fed them and how they felt inside. When they, when they moved into middle school, it was feeding them. They're becoming more. And our high schoolers started to travel. They were going all around uh, the East Coast doing disaster relief and, and, and work. Why? Because they started to feed on it. They developed a taste for it. When you meet people where they are, when you feed them what's appropriate, but you constantly introduce more and more and more as you mature, your palate develops your behavior develops, your understanding develops, and you become a more mature person. Is there anybody in here who isn't getting the point right now? Don't raise your hand because we'll have to chuckle at you, but are you getting the point? You see, Christian, you can't just live your whole life with what's comfortable and where you went so far and just stop growing in your faith. 
You see, the difference between a fifth grader and a twelfth grader is not that we or God or a parent loves anyone more or less, or that they're any more value or less valuable in God's kingdom, but we're at different places in our growth and our maturity. And you have to have age-appropriate food. How many people, though, have been a Christian for 15, 20, 30 90 years, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was talking to Jerry, not Georgia. I'm smarter than that. <laughs> but, if, but if you're not growing, and if your palate is the same today when it comes to feeding on spiritual food as you were when you were a brand new Christian, you see there's a problem with your growth and maturity. There's a problem when an adult can only eat spaghetti and chicken nuggets and Happy Meals. They've never learned to appreciate the depth of a complex palate and all that it brings to memory and what it can do for you. Now, let me continue to unpack this just a little bit because I think it's great. The author of Hebrews uh, is going to um, parrot, mimic, remind the, the Jewish people according to what Paul had said. So here's what it says in Hebrews. Um, We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant, but solid food is for the mature. For those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Brothers and sisters, as we grow in our faith, as we mature, what happens is we approach the Scripture. And as we read, sensitive palates okay, and wiser minds and more mature thinking are going to engage this. And you're going to encounter teaching that's going to bring that very kind of feeling that that greatest meal you've ever had brings. It's going to be, wow, it just leaps off the page. And, and you're excited when you think about it. Just like you were excited when you thought about the best thing you've ever eaten in your life. And when you share that with other people, what you're hoping is they hear it and they go, that's really good. Where did you get that? And they go and you start to study in your life group, in your student ministry, in your family time, in your personal devotional time. And it's leaping off the page and you begin to grow. And then what happens is the people who are with you at that level are growing, growing more. And now you have a responsibility to to teach to that group behind you to help them develop and to grow and to pull them along because the Christian life works like this. You start at a point and you grow from there. We have a phrase that we use here at Community Church and it says, come as you are, we'll grow together. And we play off those words, obviously. It kind of means several things. First of all, we'll grow together. We're going to expand in breadth and and the size of our church because, because good churches grow. That's just what happens. When churches are godly and things are happening, people vote with their feet. The church gets bigger. huh? Bigger doesn't mean better. But better gets bigger. You following me here? So if it's just big, but you're not really growing and you're not seeing discipleship and you're not seeing personal ministry and ministry that matters, then all you are is big and bloated. But if you're really good at what God's called you to do, you're going to get bigger. And that's what we're hoping for our community. Because here's the thing. When Sturgeon Bay Community Church's student ministry gets better and bigger, better, here's what Matt's going to do. 
He's going to be drawing more leaders in, giving them more opportunities to disciple teens. He's going to give middle school their opportunity and high school to do their opportunity. Eventually, we're going to see that area 56 and that college ministry boom. All these things begin to happen because Matt knows how to do that. And he knows the benefit of discipling people where they are so that they can continue to move along in their Christian life to more steps of maturity with better developed palates who can better distinguish between good and evil and what it is to live a Christian life. You see, that's why we do it, right? You with me? So hear this. If you're not growing in your faith, if you're still eating milk and kid food 10 years in, it's time to get up and start moving closer to Jesus, devouring that which is rich so you'll remember it. Now, Hebrews Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, we have this thing that's going on. They're writing to um, uh, the Jewish people, those who have been trained in the law, who know the Old Testament inside and out. They are expert chefs, as it were, okay? Yet, they're just not growing up. They're locked into one little set of menu, and that's all they know, and they don't know anything else. So, although they look mature, they're actually pretty darn childish. They've, They've only got two or three tricks up their sleeve, with me? And so what's happening here is, is the author saying, listen, listen, you, you need to grow up. You, you, you need to become rich on the word. And let me give you an example. And he starts to speak about Melchizedek. Now, as he speaks about Melchizedek, he speaks that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And most of you in here today are going, who? Moana? No, Melchizedek. Here's what it is. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, okay? Uh, Salem is how you would actually have said it. So he is the king of Arusalem. And as Abram is coming through that area, he, he pays a tax to the king of Arusalem, the city of peace. And as he pays that tax to Melchizedek, what Melchizedek says is, you are safe here, we are at peace, and you can go. And Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, it says he's the prince of peace. Your relationship with Jesus brings you to a place of peace with God. And so you pass through life now at peace with God. Jesus, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who's the high priest of Jerusalem, And we say Jerusalem. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as the king who enters the lamb of God, the prince of peace, a mighty savior who gives you the ability to be at peace with God. Don't you understand the Old Testament was painting the picture of God's plan all along, all the way back to Abram. He's showing you that even before he became Abraham, God's plan was in place for the redemption with an outstretched hand. Wow. When that starts to make sense, you know what the Bible does? The words leap off the page. And now when you read it, you go, holy cow, God always had a plan for the redemption of mankind. God's covenant all the way back, that beautiful Caesarean covenant was that I will if you will. If you do, then I promise to do this. Let's make this covenant between us so that I can pour out grace and peace to you. And this covenant goes all the way back to the garden, to Noah, to Moses, to Abram, to Jesus, and to you. That's the story of the gospel. Now, let me ask you something. Is that a chicken nugget? No. No, that is perfectly prepared 
crawfish etouffee at the court of the two sisters. And it's you tasting it going, oh my gosh, a perfect mirepoix, a perfect roux, perfectly prepared crawfish, mud bugs, perfectly prepared uh, vegetables, perfectly made French bread, perfect fried green tomatoes around the edge and fried oysters on the side, oysters on the side. And as you sit there, sorry, my mom and I argue about the correct pronunciation of that beautiful food. There's, you know, anyway. If it's perfectly prepared, you know it. But here's the thing about crawfish etouffee. You want to know what it is? It's either right or it ain't. Okay? Southerners, you with me? Okay? If it ain't right, it's just downright roach. And nobody wants to eat that nasty stuff. Okay? But if it's right, it's, it's mind-blowing. Here's the thing about Scripture. The more you study it, the more refined your palate gets. And when you read it, you're able to understand the nuance and the beauty of it. And as you mature, more of it leaps off the page. And the depth and the nuance and the beauty of it gives you that feeling of, oh my gosh, that is so good. I cannot wait to share that with someone I love. Isn't that what you do when you eat a phenomenal meal? It's fantastic. Oh, you have got to go have the, you know. That's what we do. That's what Christians are supposed to be doing. Look what Jesus has done in my life as a result of me understanding what it is to be at peace with God. I want to share that with you. I want you to enjoy that as well. 1 Corinthians 13, um, 11 says this, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose to you today that manhood is under attack in the United States of America and Western culture overall. Now, not the bigoted, chauvinistic, boys who shave kind of manhood, this fraternal foolishness of just being a boy, but being a man, a man who is dependable, respectful, hardworking, a nurturer, a supporter, an empowerer, a man of integrity who does what's right, that people can trust that his yes is yes and his no is no, a man who stands up when it's time to stand and walks away when it's just not the appropriate place to be, a man who can be depended on to be a father, a husband, a son, a good employee, a good leader, a man in the image of God who looks to the Bible and says, this is what biblical manhood looks like. It has nothing to do with your body type or your facial hair or your hairdo or your clothes or your income. It has everything to do with being a godly man. And when people encounter godly men, there's this thing that happens. Respect, regard, trust, admiration. There's a sense of safety. Because, you see, a real man isn't about trying to suppress other people so that he can stand on them. It's about helping build other people up. Because real men lead. Real men nurture. Real men can be trusted. That's godliness. Real men take stands. And Paul is saying, when I was a child, I behaved like a child. But as I've become a man, I've put away the things that are for children. I've started to behave more and more like the man that God's called me to be. Now, you can translate that right away and talk about biblical womanhood, what it is to be a godly woman. It doesn't mean to be a layover doormat who, who, who's run over all the time and lets everybody just take advantage of them and I guess I'll never achieve. No, 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 no. Biblical womanhood is a beautiful thing as well. 
It's women who lead. It's women who are women of character. They have poise and they know their Bible and they know what truth is. And they won't tolerate anything less. And young ladies, as you're starting to date, as you're starting to look around for the guys that you find interesting that may one day be somebody you go out on a date with or maybe even marry, can I challenge you to date young men and not just boys? Can I challenge you to look for people that have guys that have the best characteristics of your dad? And maybe the areas where your dad falls short, those characteristics don't exist in these boys. Can I challenge you, young ladies, to look for, for young men who deserve your time and your beauty and your trust and can be trusted? And if they don't, they don't get to spend time with you because they're not worthy of it. And here's what it does. It says, young men, grow up every day. More and more and more like a biblical man as you go. Because when you were a child, you ate like a child. You talked like a child. You behaved like a child. But as you're becoming a man, put away childish things. Hey, ladies, put away childish boys. Wait for godly young men. Fair enough. Can we do that? Young ladies, you with me here? Don't waste your time on boys. Look for young men. And, and guys, as you're growing up, when you start to become a young man, now it's okay to start dating. But you may be a 19-year-old boy, and you ain't got no business dating, okay? But you might be a 13-year-old young man, and you know, a chaperone date sounds good. That's up to you and your family. But here's what Paul's trying to get across to you. Folks, you have to be growing at all times. Come as you are, but grow. If you've been a Christian 10 years, you need to be 10 years more mature than you were the day you came to Jesus Christ. And that maturity looks like your ability to be able to read and to understand and to build upon what you're learning and build upon what you're, uh, what you're gleaning from Scripture so that more and more and more, the peace of God fills you. Your posture is a little bit more godly. Your decision-making is a little bit more biblical. And your ability to draw others along and inspire them is a little bit more developed because that palate, as it were, is better developed. And here's the thing I could tell you. Some of you, I could take you to the court of the two sisters or to, or to Coquette. <laughs> we could take you to some great places and put spectacular food in front of you and you'd go, yeah, it tastes good. And it would drive some folks out of their mind who understand all the incredible nuance that goes into genuinely, phenomenally prepared cuisine. But the job of Christians is this, always edify, encourage, build up, and challenge people around you to be more and more and more like Jesus. The more time people spend around godliness, the more their palate develops for godliness and the more they understand it. Now, let me, let me paint a picture that's not as pretty. A recent survey, this is done by, uh, um, by um, Statista. If you're a researcher or a student at all, Statista, by the way, they have a free version. Wow. If you're a scholar, a student in any way, if you're a student who wants to just rage it on papers that you're turning in, uh, this is a great site. So Statista, uh, look it up, save it. It's a great one. Here's some statistics. They're brand new, like current, not stuff that's five years old that we're rehashing right now. Here's what statistics tell. They talked to 35,000 people in the early part of 2018 around the nation all 50 states and territories, and they ask these questions in large cities and small towns. Um, what do you identify yourself as or what, what do you identify with religiously? Would you believe that 70.6% of Americans identified as Christian? Really? Well, that's, 
That's amazing. But I guess it makes sense because if we look around the nation today, we see our politicians and how godly they behave. And and we look and we see our schools and how godly our universities and state schools are behaving and teaching. And and we look around at crime statistics and we look at the news every day and we see how balanced and fair and and godly they are with no caricature. And but Shannon, what are you talking about? We look around and we go, wait, you claim one thing, but I'm seeing something else. What do we call that? Yeah, what if the food looks one way and you taste it and it's just wrong? I mean, totally wrong. You ever eaten something somebody just messed up on, right? Yeah, you can raise your hands. Don't look at your spouse when you do this. But have you ever just totally ruined it, okay? I I imagine I have. I don't know. Kim's never said, dude, seriously, no. But there's a reaction. Blah. No, no, that's just gross. What do you do? Why'd you put macaroni in your chili? What's the matter with you? You know, that's wrong. That's not what you do. I'm kidding. (laughs) But you look at it and go, this is not correct. This is incorrect. Um, Lived in Texas a while. Brisket's either right or it's dry. Ain't nobody eating dry brisket. That's wrong, okay? But when it's right, Steve, am I right? Is it spectacular? Is it, is it worth driving across town to have when it's right? Oh, yeah. When Christians are living out the lifestyle they've been called to, people say, I can respect that. I want more of that. I want to spend more time around the people. I want to hire more of those people. I want more of them in my life. That's the kind of people I want to date. That's the kind of people I want to surround myself with. That's the kind of people I want on my team, in my social circle, in my neighborhood, in my life. But when Christians aren't living up to what's advertised, it's hypocrisy. So what's the state of America right now? Well, as it turns out, uh, another poll, this is a tableau poll. uh, What are the crime rates in the United States of America for 2018? Just coming in data, okay? And this obviously is through October, so it's the first three quarters of 2018. But here's what we're finding. In this 70.6% Christian nation, we had 7,694,086 property crimes. And 70.6 of that was committed by Christians, as it would. Larceny and theft, 5,519,000. Burglary, violent crime, 1.283,200. I think that's just Chicago. Uh, Aggravated assault, 810,000. Christians, apparently, 773,139. I'm sorry, this doesn't line up. If 70% of the population plus is Christian and they're behaving like this, what does it say about Christianity? Hey, it says one of two things. Either it's false and not as advertised, right? Which I think is the truth. Or, or it means that Christians aren't behaving the way they're called to behave because it's inconsistent with Scripture. Which means that the majority of people who claim to be Christians, the vast majority, are babies. They claim the name of Jesus, but they haven't been feeding on anything that's made them mature and grown up. They're not living like Christian women and Christian men. They're living like culture. And culture is opposed to Scripture. What is the fruit of Christianity? The fruit of Christianity is that you behave more like the biblical standard. What does that look like? If you have your Bibles with me, with you, I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 5. I do not have a slide for this, so those of you who don't have it will just kind of listen with me for a minute. I'll give you my reminder slide. Here you go. 
That's what shows up for me right up here, so now you know. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn over there, and I want you to listen. If you don't have your Bibles and you haven't zipped it up on, on, your, on your phones right now, I just want you to listen to this for a minute, okay? If you're wondering, yes, we're going to go long by a couple minutes today. You'll be fine. The Saints game's at 3 o'clock, so you've got plenty of time to get home and sit. Who that? <laughs> The words of Paul to the Galatians, starting in chapter 5, verse 16. I'm saying this to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to one another, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, that is to say, the law of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Americans, listen, does this sound familiar? It's written to Galatia. I wonder if scripture is relevant in the 21st century. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The law is not against these things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Friends and neighbors, if the church of Jesus Christ lives like Jesus calls us to live, the evidence, the fruit, okay, is going to be so easy for people to see. And that fruit is desirable in our lives. If you're living like the culture, the world around you, hypocritically, what's happening is people look at that and they don't find Christianity and the gospel appetizing because you're no different than the rest. And they want to spit that out of their mouth because it's fake. And nobody likes fraud. Nobody likes getting ripped off. You said you're Christian, and then I find out you're just like the rest of the world. There's nothing different in you. You call yourself a godly man, yet your behavior is just like the rest of these pagans and self-centered misogynistic, lying, abusing fools. You're not what you said you are. And when that contempt comes, it is well earned. What does it look like when the works of the flesh perpetuate in the church? It means that the church looks like the rest of the culture rather than being a light and a beacon in that culture. And what are the characteristics of it? Well, let's see. Sexual immorality. What is sexual immorality? Anything divergent from God's plan for human sexuality. Hear me again. Anything that diverges from it. God's biblical model, which is a delicious thing to ingest and to build our lives on and fill our minds with, that's exactly right, has to do with faithfulness, fidelity. It has to do with waiting. It has to do with faithful sexual expression between one man and one woman in marriage for a lifetime. Loving one another selfishly, selflessly, and completely. 
giving themselves completely to each other in total submission, total support, and total trust. And knowing that each of you can be that because the other is that as well. Oh, but we're so much smarter than that narrow-minded Christian stuff, aren't we? Oh, we Americans are so good at it. We have the highest divorce rate in the history of the world, but we are so much better at it than those Christians, aren't we? We have, you know, liberated ideas of sexuality and what's right and wrong. How's that working out for you? Is that, is that painting the image that the Bible paints of what godly homes and godly marriages look like? Ladies, do you, do you feel more valued in our culture and our society and respected and admired as, as women? You don't feel like objects, do you? You don't, you don't feel like things to be achieved or gained or ogled or taken advantage of, do you? Yeah. You see, I fear this for my daughter. I fear that our culture has so thrown away the truth of Scripture for anything else that the very things Paul's warning about lead to the lack of love and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness that are inconsistent with God's way for Christians. God's way is better. You know what it's like? It's like perfectly prepared, well done, delicious things that you long for and you can't wait to share with other people because they say hey look that junk you've been eating doesn't bring fulfillment but we're going to live together for a little while again what what, what, what are you talking about stop that cut it out don't live together for a little while to see if it works that's called using each other for your own gratification with a nice big exit door to the side just in case you don't like the result just in case it see it feels too much like having to be responsible and committed to one another No, 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 no. How about live the way God called you to live, and I promise you, it'll be vastly more fulfilling than anything you could have imagined before. That's just the first word. Look at all the others he talks about. Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, which is putting other things in front of God, sorcery, which is believing in magics and crazy religious ideas, and and hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Identity politics, anyone? Do you think politics are going to bring you happiness and meaning and purpose? No, look, we keep doing this as people, just like they did in Galatia, just like they did in Corinth. We keep putting things in front of Jesus, hoping they're going to fulfill us and make us happy and be full. You know what's going to resonate with you? You know what's going to be the thing that fills your mouth and goes, yes, that's the greatest thing I ever learned. The truth of God's word rightly applied in your life. When the Spirit dwells in you, the Spirit resonates when truth is read. You know where you get that? Spending time in the Word. Well, folks, what was is what is. We're people. We're made in God's image. And just because they lived 2,000 years ago when these words were penned, and we live today, what we understand is this. There's nothing new under the sun. God made us to be in relationship with Him. That's the end cause of our existence. So here's the message, really, as we break this down from the scriptures to our world today. American Christians, you must develop an appetite for grown-up cuisine and find deep satisfaction in devouring scriptural truth and do so on a daily basis. Failure to do so will result in your remaining anemic, weak, susceptible to sickness, and to stunted growth. As worship team comes up to play, here's a a scripture verse I just want you to hear and I want you to think on for a minute. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, 
for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, that means preacher in that phrase, may be perfectly equipped, thoroughly furnished for all good works. Now bring that home. That the people of God can come to the scriptures and feast on that. That their entire mind is just consumed with how beautiful, how delicious, how memorable, how exciting, how transformative those words are. As we're filled with right doctrine, inspiration, correction, proving what we knew was true in the first place. And to be instructed in God's way for right living so that our minds are filled with those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy so that as we think on these things, the behavior that comes out of that well causes the people around us to say, I want more of that. What, what you, the way you're changing, the way you're growing, where does that come from? I want more of that. I don't see hatred. I don't see bigotry. I don't, I don't see foolishness. What I see in you is godly womanliness and godly manliness. You're growing up. You're the kind of person I want to be around. You're, you make me want to be a better person. Friends, that's the effect of feasting on the gospel of Jesus. Let me ask you to close your eyes, to bow your heads. I just want you to go into a place of quiet for a moment. At Community Church, we often ask you just, just to imagine in your mind's eye there that you're all alone in a great vast emptiness and it's just you and Jesus standing or sitting kind of face to face and just in that moment let's ask this he's saying to you child are you spending time in my word are you reading about me are you feeding on the truth that I've given you I promise you it's inspiring Child, are you growing day by day by day so that where you were last year is so far behind where you are today? Do you have memories of spectacular revelations as you've been reading the words and they came off the page? Are you eager to share that with others? Because you see, with eyes still closed and heads still bowed in that quiet place, if your answer is no, I'm not experiencing that. I've I've not had that happen. Friend, I want you to understand, all you got to do is take a step. Begin. Come as you are. Let's grow together. Wherever you are in your lifestyle and your challenges and your questions and your immaturity, let's move from milk to chocolate milk, okay? Hey, let's let's move from chocolate milk to, to apples and yogurt. Let's move from there to chicken nuggets and then to to hamburgers and then to steaks and then to ribs and eventually to grown-up food where you're, as you're eating it, you can discern greatness and you can appreciate the richness of what God would have us feeding on. 